what is up, Podheads? Back with another episode of the Podio Slay Podcast. My name is Tony. I'm joined by Anthony. We're both phenomenal. Uh, it's been a whirlwind January yeah. for us. And man, I, I'm I'm really stoked that, as I always say every week, that we get to do this. But I, I'm happy about this episode, which is going to be two in particular, because it was, as we're getting closer to Super Bowl time, it was your Super Bowl. Oh, I love that. It was my Super Bowl. Yeah, man. I think I say this in the episode with Alex, like this is like one of the final boss interviews. Mm-hmm. And I know that we have a ton of them, but it's in terms of like achievable guests that like Dave Grohl, he ain't coming on this. Zach from Rage, he's not coming on this. You know, it's a lot of these legacy guys, you know, but as far as attainable guests, this was, yeah, this was right up there. And, and if you've listened to the podcast, you know, Crime Mysterio, arguably my favorite band of all time, and certainly of my, what I call mine, like my era. We existed at this very same time, similar age. I grew when they grew. I was trying to think, Tony, and you have a better memory than me. We chatted about Crime Mysterio on the lyrics episode, on the He's on Fire three album run. Mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I gave, I think I gave Explosives. Stateside. Stateside is and is dead. And you could probably continue that. But And then we talked about him at year end episode with in 2023 mm-hmm. i think we've talked about seeing them actually concert impossible i think i talked about the west coast trip i went to go see them i think mm-hmm. i can't remember and i mean you've seen them over the course of time too a decent amount and over the course of our po- the life of the podcast we've talked about them just in passing because they are one of your favorite bands and you you know by proxy got me into them got nate into them and oh, yeah. uh, being able to kind of share in that Again, your Super Bowl the other night, uh, yeah. <laughs> talking talking to Alex for two and a half hours was uh, it was awesome, man. I, I I thoroughly enjoyed it. Well, it's funny you you've been so we've been doing this podcast for four years. You've been nudging me like we could probably get one of those guys, and I've held I held off. I because mm-hmm. you know they say don't meet your heroes. Like it was one of those things where they're a cryptic band. They are. They have that Long Island cryptic sauce, you know that's that's in the blood in, in the water there. So I didn't. I didn't know where they were at as a band, if they'd even want to talk, you know, not necessarily with us, but just in general. And would the conversation suck? And, you know, you just, you never know. And I know we've said that about a few guests here, but you, you truly never know. And it was always kind of a stay away. And then pure noise signing house and trance gets announced, you know, yep. it's like, well, they don't hate each other. They're still making music. Let's reach out. Now's the time. And actually we had the Twitter. What happened on we, Twitter? We had the Twitter exchange. We, I think you posted uh, the record when it came, because we both bought it, you know, pre-ordered it, showed up in the mail. We're super stoked it's there. We're like, have it in our hands. It's like the first Crime Mysterio record in 13 years. I, you know, It's Christmas morning in late October. And they were like, have us on the podcast. And I think we think it's Alex that runs the, he's, I'm pretty sure he's the one that runs a lot of their socials. And you know, we DMs back and forth, and stuff happens, holidays happen, takes time to, so some of these things from, if we say it in the episode, from start to let's do this to actually getting it to off the ground to happen to you guys hearing it today takes five months, four months sometimes because life gets in the way, things happen, holidays happen, and uh, we were able to finally you know get this recorded early January and out to you now, and it's a phenomenal two part conversation. I think it's a banger. I tell him in the episode, and I'm I think I'm gonna stand by it. I think it's my favorite episode, not only just the content but how the conversation went. It was. I think we, we recorded, what, two and a half hours? At least. Yeah, maybe, maybe a little more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we probably could have kept going, but I think, you know, people at work and whatnot. But this first 
episode, we get into Alex has come up on Long Island. There's a, if you're a Long Island head like we are, there's some gold as far as like mid-90s to early 2000s Long Island talk. We get into the start of the band, the history of the name, which I never knew. So I don't even know if that's even known, but the history of the band. And there's two all-time stories about how they got signed to Blackout. I'm not going to give any hints. You'll have to listen. And about how they signed to Nitro. Those are all time. Like, I would put those up against anything on this podcast that we've had. Uh, we dig into the troubled state side a little bit. We dig into the Bridge Nine era. And that's really where this episode cuts off. It's probably going to be an hour. And then part two is more of the ramp up to House and Trance, Pure Noise, and uh, just some, you know, talk about the scene and whatnot. But yeah, yeah. if you like this, stick around for part two. Yeah, and, and you'll like this. So listen to this one. <laughs> wait for a week. Hit us up in the DMs. Wait for a week. Share it with your friends. Wait for a week. And part two will hit you uh, next week around this time as well. So, yeah, let's, let's get into part one with Alex Dunn of Crime and Stereo. Alex. Yes. Crime and Stereo live from New York, I assume somewhere. How <laughs> the hell are you doing? Good. Good. How uh, how are you guys? I'm I'm stoked. I'm stoked to uh, to to finally get to to do this. We've been we've been circling it for a little bit, and I'm sorry sorry that I've been giving you giving you the runaround around the holidays, but I'm I'm thrilled to have this be the the first thing of the year. That that's to be expected. We get that now, having done this for almost four years. So stuff doesn't always start day one, and then day three yeah. we're doing it. Sometimes it takes you know a couple of months to to get things together, and we're super stoked that it's even happening. So. Don't don't even worry about that, man. So yeah, we're doing well. We're excited to have you. Hell yeah, let's dive in. You guys have let's let's see. Uh, I'm interested to to see what what you got. You got yeah, you have no idea what's coming. So Alex, there's one person on this planet that has listened to Crime and Stereo the most out of every human being, and it's this guy. I would wow. I would put it up against anyone, maybe besides someone in the band, and maybe even still, like it's one of those things like you don't taste your own food type of thing. Yeah. Like you steer clear of it, dude. It's me. It is wow, me. man. Thank you so much. I don't know how to prove it, but it's fucking me. That's honestly, it's that's fucking awesome. I mean, we, we really appreciate it. Like, it, it, that's incredible. It's incredible, honestly, that anybody listens to our band. So it, it's really awesome. We're, we're super grateful for anybody that, that does everybody that does. Do you really mean that? Like, are you surprised that people are into it? I, I like, I don't know. I think we're, I think we're a good band. I think we've always been a good band, but I think it, you know, part of doing this for a long time and and you know i'm sure like you guys or whatever like spending your life in music just like in your scene and going to shows and being friends with bands and everything like i mean you see it both ways like you see the you know bands that are just not very good you know become the biggest bands in the world and you see the bands that are legitimately sincerely the best bands in the world and they it never you know they never get to like make a record or go on tour or do any of this stuff. So I don't, you know, if you have, if you have a band that kind of exists in the world in, in such where like you make records and people know who your band is and they buy your stuff and listen to your stuff and whatever, like you, you're, you're like one in a million of one in a million. You're so it's lucky. So true. That's so, so true. Yeah. So like, no, like, you know, I'm not trying to be like self deprecating. Um, I think we're a good band, but I, I think that any band that like gets to kind of do this stuff at that at that level is you're super lucky. It's a really good point because it, it's kind of like pro sports. And we've made this analogy here and there on the podcast before. But 
you, you don't get to the NBA. You don't get to Major League Baseball. Um, even even some of the best do, but like you've got to be good to get there. You've got to be yeah. a good band to. I mean, obviously, we we think you are. So, uh, but you've got to be that. You've got to put your time in. You've got to play those those basement shows for whatever how many years. You've got to have yeah. somebody take a chance on putting you on a bill or more than that to to get to the point where you're you know on pure noise 25 years later and putting records out yeah. so well it actually reminds me of i don't know if you know that whole like uh thing i think it was like a malcolm gladwell thing originally but about how like sports parents try to target their kids enrollment date are you are you familiar with this whole this is yeah this is in phenomenon? the uh, uh yep it's it's um outliers so, yes yep. yeah, yes yeah exactly an outliers, outliers, so, yeah. so it's like if for people that if you're not familiar with this like if you want your kid to be a, a good athlete and they're born later in the year, you want them held back till the following school year because it, it has this compounding effect where your kid, when they start playing sports, they're basically five years old playing, you know, six years old playing against five, five-year-olds and they're physically better. And then that gives them more confidence. And then they get to go on the travel team. And when they get on the travel team, they get better coaching. And then they're playing against better competition. And so that kicks them up another level. And you go to the next level, and it's the same thing. It's better coaching, better facilities, better competition. Anyway, the, I bring that up to say that like being in a band is extremely similar. That when you're a band and you're lucky to start out and go on tour, you know, that's reps like those those are your reps like anybody that's ever been in a local band knows like it is it's tough to get shows like it's when you're starting out as a, as a local band like it's tough to get four or five shows in a year or string together totally a half a dozen shows let alone like wow how do we go out of state like who do we talk to and like how do we get a show in a you know in some other state and anyway when you go on tour now you're playing a hundred shows like 200 you're playing every single night and it has that same kind of compounding effect where like you know like you first you're you're learning your chops and you're getting better but then you get kicked up into better rooms and you're not playing vfws and catering halls with like somebody's shitty pa that they brought from their house now you're in clubs that have five million dollar sound systems you know or maybe when you're starting out like million dollar sound systems and and i remember i remember distinctly like the when we got to the point in touring where we had monitors we had been touring for years before we ever stepped on stages that had monitors and that was like a whole thing to learn of like oh now we can hear ourselves and then the same thing that like then if you are very 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 lucky as a band you get to go and start opening up for the best bands in the world and in some cases like with us like the greatest bands of all time like we've gotten to really play with like many of the greatest punk and hardcore bands to have ever existed and then and you're getting blown off the stage every night <laughs> by these bands right. like it's it's embarrassing you know like you, you you're coming out of a VFW and you feel like pretty good about you know how your how your stuff sounds and then you get on these stages and and it's like these bands are machines they never make a mistake they never have an off night you know they don't even take breaks in between songs and anyway i i think that 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 being in a band is very 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 similar to that kind of you know young athlete analogy that like if you're lucky to get the reps and then you're lucky to play the good rooms and then you're lucky 
to open up for these bands. That's the kind of maturation process that I don't know how a, like a band, I don't know how you could replicate or like manufacture that if without actually having the real experience. Totally. Well, yeah. hey, let, let's keep with this analogy because you guys, you coming out of Long Island is basically that six-year-old playing against five-year-olds. And so the, I know you were in the rookie lot before mm -hmm. Crime and Stereo. Is that where it starts for you? Where you're, or does it start even before that? Because I know that was, what, 98, 99? Yeah, the uh, rookie lot was probably 98, like 97, 98. I was a junior in high school. And so, like, how about this? It feels kind of like the opposite. It doesn't feel like, oh, we're six-year-olds playing against five-year-olds. Like, I think in that analogy, it's like, we are the five-year-olds. Like, you got to realize yeah, that like, when, I, I agree. when I was growing up, you know, in a, in a two-town radius. So my town, Levittown. I'm from Levittown, New York, which is, uh, you know, America's first suburb. Me and Christian and all of the, the, the original Prime and Serio guys are all from Levittown. Uh, there's three high schools in Levittown. And then the next town over is, is Merrick, Belmore Merrick. And in just the two high schools in my town and then the one town over was all of the guys from brand new movie life in Glassjaw. So you're the freshman trying, trying out for, for the, for the varsity team is basically yeah, what you're saying. It was yeah. like the, you know, and it was the same thing with Lindenhurst at the time. So like Lindenhurst was the long Island hardcore Mecca and it kind of, it is again, you know, uh, now, but in the, in the mid nineties, that's where silent majority is from and mind over matter and Millhouse and all of these bands. And, you know, VOD also is from Merrick. So it's basically between three high schools that are all right next to each other. I had the guys from VOD, Glassjaw, Movie Life, and Brand New in my, either I, in my school or in the same town. Crazy. And that puts you in a weird, like, it's like, and then across the rest of Long Island with our, you know, the bands we came up with, Heads Versus Breakers and Backup Plan and Scraps and Heart Attacks, which kind of morphed into This Is Hell and Thieves and Assassins and, like, it oh, basically yeah. was, like, if you wanted to be recognized in your own scene, you were up against the biggest bands in the world. Like, yep. in your own high school. Like, if I wanted to, I couldn't be in the, I couldn't even be, like, my band was the cool band right. from <laughs> my high school, you know, like, with Crime and Stereo, because it's, like, the dudes from Brand New were from my high school, you know? And uh, again, like all the all the guys from all those other bands were from either the north side of Levittown or one town over in Merrick, in Belmore Merrick. So that, I mean, Long Island, like, it's very chill. Everybody, it's very, you know, there's a great, like, atmosphere of camaraderie. But, dude, the Long Island bands, it, like, Long Island is so sick musically. Mm -hmm. There are so many sick bands that it is this kind of like, I don't know, pressure, I don't want to say pressure cooker, but, uh, you know, like a very like baptism by fire kind of thing. Like if you want to be recognized around here, like everybody's sick, every band is sick. And then when you factor in the bands from that, like early aughts, pop punk emo explosion, many of them are Forget like still the it. biggest yeah. bands in America yeah, and the world. Totally. Yeah. So what, what drew you into it initially is you like, I, I, the camaraderie of the, the people that were in the scene? Or was that you just like music, you want to play music, hang with your friends, do that? 
Yeah, yeah. I was a hardcore kid first before I ever, you know, thought that I would pick up a guitar. I got into it through uh, like the BMX scene. So this was like the early 90s when I was in like middle school. And there was a skate park in Levittown called Yom. Uh, it was like in the, the back alley behind like a Jewish community center. And there was a this would have been like 95. I was probably in, you know, like eighth or ninth grade. 30 years ago. Insane. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there was a cassette tape floating around in, I'm going to say right around then, 94, 95, which would have made me 13 or 14. And it was on one side, it was the VOD still seven inch. And the other side was the uh, 25 to life short fuse seven inch. Oh, nice. Yeah. And just like everybody was making copies of this tape i mean this really was in the days where like you know not to go all like back in my day but you know again if you guys are 40 years old like it's the same era for you where it was like someone had to hand you something physically like you had to be handed a tape you know you had to be handed a flyer that had directions printed on it like there was no other way to kind of get into these things and so now, like right now in 2023, like you hear people talking all the time about like turnstile and like the turnstile effect and like the, you know, the seemingly like millions of new hardcore kids that they've brought into it. But back in the mid in like 1995, that was VOD. I mean, VOD on Long Island was just I, w- I wish that there was a, you know, a way to kind of like I wish I had like a visual aids to show you like all of the shows back then were still illegal. This was years and this was 10 years before major venues were willing to take a chance on hardcore music every show was an illegal underground show and vod was putting two and three thousand people in warehouses in illegal back alley warehouses on long island so that and i think the vod explosion like that was kind of their thing and then that spills over into you know, Silent Majority and and Glassjaw and all of these guys kind of having this very fertile, you know, even though Silent Majority were, were contemporaries of, of VOD, it just brought in this just what what must have been a zillion people, you know, obviously, you know, speaking and exaggerating, but I was one of them. And I think everybody kind of in my generation from Long Island, like it, it was VOD that got you in. And then you had Silent Majority and Mind Over Matter and Millhouse and Inside and Indecision and Trip Face. And, you know, Gla- this was when Glassjaw was opening shows. Movie Life was opening shows. So you're, you're going to shows. You're in the thick of it. You're in the rookie lot. How does that trend? Like, what's, do you remember the turning point where crime and stereo did not exist one day? And then the next day, it's a thing. Like, what was that? Yes. After rookie lot, uh, I was the only one of my music friends me and, and mike musilli who uh was the, the other co- like co-founder of of crime and stereo he was our original bass player up up through um is dead we were the only ones that that went to college so like all of my other high school friends so the other dudes in rookie lot were jesse brian and garrett from brand new and brandon riley from movie life and so when we graduated high school, they all went on tour, like at 18 years old, and they all went on tour. It was like Brandon joined Movie Life just before they were about to do this time next year. And the dudes, Brian did go to college for maybe like the first year or whatever, but then they started brand new and they started touring super quick. 
So there's kind of a weird thing with Crime and Stereo and those bands because the dudes in those bands are my contemporaries in age. Me and Brian. Me, Brian, and Garrett from Brand New and Brandon from The Movie Life, we all graduated high school the same year. And Jesse was a couple years older than us. Daryl and Vin were a couple. And Justin Beck and those dudes were maybe like two years older. Uh, And Vinicardi, who went to my high school, a guitar player from Brand New, was two years younger than me. So those dudes, in terms of age, are all my contemporaries. But by the time we started Crime and Stereo, they were all in the biggest bands in America. So Crime and Stereo, uh, we started my junior year of college, which would have been the beginning of 2002. And it really was by that time that was Movie Life was about to put out 40 Hour Train, brand new in 2003, would have put out Deja, uh, Glassjaw did Worship and Tribute that year. You know, so it's like, it's hard, it's kind of like hard to put into words. Like we were getting off the ground and like trying to like get shows and like do a demo and stuff like that. And all of my like friends, from high school were literally like on TRL every day. And, you know, like these dudes are, you know, it, it was really, you know, kind of a, a crazy thing. So Crime and Stereo, how it started was similar to that, that Mike and I had had a band in between Rookie Lot and Crime and Stereo that wasn't good and kind of was very directionless <laughs> wow. and aimless. And we broke up on New Year's Day of 2002. We broke up uh, that day. And we said we wanted to start a hardcore band. And then randomly, what I think was like a couple of days later, this was the first, I think like the first week in January, Brand New was playing The Chance in Poughkeepsie, which just closed, and they were opening for Murphy's Law. And so me and and Mike, who started started Crime and Stereo with, we were huge Murphy's Law fans. And the show was... Brand new, Taking Back Sunday, Fizzlewink, who later became Matchbook Romance. And oh, Murphy yeah. yeah. On Epit- Epitaph, yeah. Yeah, at, at the Chance in Poughkeepsie. And we drove from Long Island to Poughkeepsie in a cargo van with no seats where we were sitting <laughs> on pallets on the floor with all of the amps and everything just sliding around on pallets on the floor with like amps and heads and everything. And me and Mike rolled with Brand New up to the show, which they opened because we wanted to watch. We wanted to see Murphy's Law. And Christian Halbert, the, the Crime and Stereo singer, was a freshman in college. Uh, he was in art school in Manhattan to, for photography. And he was friends with Eddie Reyes from Taking Back Sunday. And this again, this was like when Taking Back Sunday was on a demo. And so Christian rolled with Taking Back Sunday up to the same show in their van to take pictures for them. And so later we're all hanging out while Fizzlewink is playing and it's just the three of us. And we have this van to ourselves and me and Mike and we're me and Mike and Christian are sitting in this van drinking uh, like 40 ounces or whatever. And me and Mike were like, yeah, we're going to start a new hardcore band. And Christian was like, I can sing. And like truly based on nothing, like we <laughs> he, he, we we had no evidence that he could sing. It really, this was, it was based on nothing other than in that moment, Christian said, I can sing. And we said, you're in. Wow. Did you even know him at the time? We, he is also from, he's from Division, which is the north side of Levittown High School. So he's a couple of years younger than Brandon Riley. 
and Garrett Tierney and some of those other the dudes from that side of Levittown. So we did know him. He was like a, he's two years younger than me. But it was really that, that we were just, it's so surreal to think about that we were just like drinking 20, I believe like 22s in a van at a, at a brand new Taking Back Sunday Murphy's Law show. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and Christians just said, was like, yeah, man, like I can sing. And, and we were like, that's it. You're the singer. Did you guys have any early goals once you started, you know, jamming? We were like, let's just play some shows or like, let's, let's try to make this as big and as, you know, as good as it can be. The earliest, the really, the only time we really had stated goals were to the whole, our, our ultimate goal was to tour out to California and do one album, like get, get signed and be able to make right on. one album. And those really at the time seemed like extremely lofty goals, you know, like well, I was a junior in college or whatever, you know, so um, that seemed crazy. Again, this was still early days. This is like before, you know, I get like, I really don't, I'm not trying to get like old man, old man on the porch or anything, but it, it those things felt not easily attainable. You know what I mean? Like so many of the bands that we were obsessed with that like were our heroes. It's like those dudes had never gotten to California. Like they had never done a full US tour or they had one record and broke up and, and that was it. So to say so you wanted to do a record and do like a full US tour, like those felt like big goals. They, they are. I mean, we know yeah. how hard it is to break in. That, that, those are massive goals. <laughs> so yeah. nothing, nothing to sneeze. And obviously you made them happen. So. Well, especially in that lens, you know, the 2001, 2002 lens, like it's not the tell all your friends era TBS is right before that. It's not Deja era. So like, you know, like neglect never made it out there. You know what I mean? Like that wave never probably crossed the Mississippi. Uh, and it was before, like you said, like the, the glass jaws and everyone really, really, really popped. So, yeah, given the context, that is pretty lofty. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, silent majority did one U.S. tour their whole existence. So it was like they saw California once, one time. They have, you know, two seven inches and a full length and, a, and an EP. You know, like that, that really was like, those, those were the, the big goals. Like, I don't, again, I, I'm not trying to um, make it seem like what, what we've been able to accomplish is like pedestrian now, but to be a band that had like five full lengths or whatever, you know, and had done world tours. Like you had to be, you know, you know what I mean? Like in the late nineties, like early two thousands, which is where, you know, the, I guess at the time we're talking about, it's like 2002, 2003. It was like, you had to be hate breed or so, you know what I mean? Somebody totally like, like you know, snap case, like some, you had to be the biggest hardcore band in the world to ever think you were going to see that number of albums or that kind of touring. Absolutely. Yeah, that that didn't happen pre this kind of wave. And then this wave certainly made that a little more accessible. And I think that I mean, looking at it through a 2023 2024 lens, it's way more attainable today. But yeah, the game has changed too, right? I mean, you're, it's part time jobs for a lot of people. This was so again, this is even before this is before my space is before like any of these kinds of things. And I remember when we first started touring, in what would have been 2003 and when i say touring I, I mean like getting out of state shows you know where you would go and try and string together like a jersey and a philly show or you know something like that one time we drove to atlanta to play one show we drove from long island to atlanta to play one show and back 
But at that time, we had to get contacts from Kill Your Idols. So this was like, this, re this really was this kind of like old world, you know, like Samizdat being, you know, passed down from friends to, to friends that like, you couldn't just book a show. We happened to be, you know, friends with the guys in Kill Your Idols and they were amazing, amazing to us in our early days. And they gave us a notebook that was like, this is this dude in Florida and this guy in Pennsylvania. And it's like, if you want to play out of state shows, like here's, you got to, here's this guy's phone number. Like you have to call him. And that was how we started touring was with this like book of contacts that Kill Your Idols gave us. It was some dude's mom's house, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah for sure. Heard that before too. Yep. yep. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, our, the, all of the early years of crime and stereo touring was just VFWs. It, lucky if you're in a VFW. I mean, like basements and living rooms and catering halls and sleeping on floors for, for years, for like several years before we ever... It was the touring on Is Dead that we ever were on like package tours with big bands in real venues. So all of the explosives contract troubled stateside time was just DIY touring. So how did the name come about? And I know some bands are protective of the name. They don't want to disclose. No, this is like a dumb story. We, we, had, no, want, I'm in. we had no PA. It, we used to, uh, Scotty. So the band started as myself, Christian, Mike Musilli, and Scotty, our original drummer. And we practiced in Scotty's basement, and we didn't have a PA. And so there, we had a shitty old keyboard amp, like a Roland keyboard amp. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Wow. one day before practice, we, we knew we liked the word crime and we were like throwing around different kind of iterations of the word crime. And Christian like took this, his, this microphone quarter inch cable over to this like Roland keyboard amp and was like, didn't know where he was like, do I plug it in in mono or in stereo? And we all like looked at each other and we were like, That's <laughs> crime in stereo. And, and that was it. And then shortly later, we had our demo recorded in that same basement, in Scotty's basement, by Vinnie Corrigan, who was, is Tommy Corrigan, the singer for Silent Majority. It's his younger brother who was in Inside and uh, Blood Red and is like uh, just phenomenal musician and this amazing dude. And he made our first demo in that basement on a Tascam four track to cassette. It's so weird to say these things because it makes me sound like I came up with like the Velvet Underground <laughs> yep. in the 70s. You know, it's like, it's so bizarre now like to hear myself say these things out loud, but it's like, yeah, like we, that was the early days of this band was like the first demo was on a Tascam 4 track uh, to cassette and to get shows. Like we had, we got like crumpled slips of paper from Kill Your Idols, you know, to get, to get out of state contacts and yeah. So Alex, Crime and Stereo was almost crime in analog. Yeah, crime and mono. Dude, I, I don't even want to say, I don't even want to say, like, the, the dumbass things that we were throwing around. Like, it's a blessing that, I don't know if Crime and Stereo is a good name. I really don't. I, I don't possess the ability to tell. So, like, it could be a cool name, or it could be, like, a super cornball cheesy name. I just, I, I can't know at this point, but it is definitely better than any of the other things that it almost was. It's <laughs> amazing. And uh, as fans, we can say, I think we think it's a cool name. It, like it fits. Oh, it's yeah. No, it's uh, we've we've uh, dove in headfirst on a couple of different episodes where we've uh, you know maybe lambasted some not so good names that we. <laughs> so this one's not one of those. This is definitely a good a good band name. Prime and Mono. Yeah, that 
would have needed to but more explain. I'll tell you. I'll tell you another thing about like what's what's surreal about like being in a band was like I I now like distinctly palpably recall this kind of like low grade anxiety because death by stereo already existed yeah. and it was like oh yeah. like death by stereo and like they're on epitaph and they're huge and it's like is everyone gonna just like say that we're biting them or we're ripping them off or like what if nobody you know ever notices us because of how big death by stereo is and just like the the dumb things that you that you think about so you guys form you do the demo four track in the basement you pick a name so demo drops which i've been trying to get that demo forever no one has it for sale i'm not yeah. even convinced it exists oh if i ever come but... across one i will i will get it to you i'm not sure that i have one Oh, right on. Okay. So I don't feel as bad. And then there's the Kill Your Idol split. Then there's Explosives, mm -hmm. Contract era. And that was the era that I got into, guys. It was oh, nice. honestly like I looked up. Explosives came out 20 years ago, almost to the day. When is this podcast going to air? This is going to air probably late January, mid to late oh, Jan. Oh, yeah. okay. So fine. So this won't matter then. Thursday of this week, January 4th, which will actually be the 20 year anniversary of when explosives came out. Uh, six, right? Explosives will yeah. be available on vinyl for the first time ever. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's so, awesome. uh, Blackout is Blackout is putting that out. It never it was never pressed to vinyl the first time around. So this is the first time it'll ever be out. So I guess by the time people are hearing this, you will be able to buy. That. So we're going to rush to get this out tonight. And we're <laughs> yeah. going to break yeah. the yeah. Internet. No. We're no, we're not. <laughs> As the main editor, we are not doing that. <laughs> so the reason I bring that up is the goal was West Coast appearance in mm -hmm. one full length. So at this point in like 2004, you do that. Is there a reassessment of the plan? I'm trying to think of like the, the chronology in, in which, um, you know, all of these things happen. I mean, look, at a point when you're like, once you're on the road, there, there is... There is something so addictive about it that I think that's the only thing that you can see. You are truly living the dream. Like when you were you're like, you know, again, like oh, Prime and Stereo started with four dudes who were friends from their hometown, none of whom could play instruments. You know, like it was like, you're going to play bass and you'll sing right oh, and yeah. I'll be the guitar player. Like no one knew how to play instruments or anything. And so like to get to the point where like you have a, a you know, a record deal. And, you know, people are singing along at, at shows and you're, you're touring the, the country with your best friends. It's so intoxicating that I'm going to say, you know, that probably was like 2005 for us, 2004, 2005. And that's really all the mentality was until we broke up. That really is essentially what led us to break up. And I think this, uh, you know, I'm speculating, but I would imagine this is the downfall of many bands is you just start making all of your decisions based on how do we stay on the road? Because yeah. the, first of all, the, again, the lifestyle of being in a full-time touring band, there is no better life you could live. It's, you, that's, it's like you've made it. Even if, you're not, even if you're not getting the money and the sold out shows and all of those kind of more material trappings to just like be on the road with your best friends, playing shows every single night, being at in a different age. city. At that yeah, age, at that age yeah, 22 years old. It's the best life you can live. But then what happens is if you come off tour for too long, then you have to get jobs. It's like you only have enough money to like live at home for like two weeks or whatever. Or maybe you can pick up like pizza delivery gigs or something like that. 
but it's like, hey, if we stay home for two months, then I have to get a job. And then if everybody gets jobs, you're not sure if everybody's going to be able to leave again for the next tour, because now maybe you have to stay so you don't lose your job. So it eventually, and I, I'm, I'm fast forwarding here. This is years later, but I do feel like that when you say like we're goals reassessed, no, I don't think we ever were like, here's right. what the next goal is. It literally just became how do we stay on the road full time so that we don't have to go home and get shitty jobs in pizza places. And that's why like Crime and Stereo's done some like strange tours, like strange bedfellows. Like we would we went on tour with anybody. There was an against all we did an against all authority crime and stereo tour. The 10 for 10 tour? How's that one? Yeah, that was, I mean, that, that was different. That was, later, that, was, that was better. That was, that was later, yeah. and that was, that was much cooler. But, like, in the early days, man, it was like, yeah, if you're, if you're gigging, we're gigging. You know, like, we'll, we're, we're, down to, we're down to play shows because we don't want to be home. How does Nitro come into the picture? And it, so in terms of time frame, we're talking 06. The signing must have probably been in 05. So Explosives maybe popping a little bit? Yeah, Explosives did okay. We, yeah, we so Explosives comes out on Blackout. We do the contract to get out of the Blackout. That's why it's called the contract. There's an interesting. So wait, let me let me back up. I don't want to. I don't. I, I don't want. I hope I'm not getting too. No, dig in. Here, dig to, into the to weeds your, here. To your listeners, I don't want to skip over an interesting and funny story. Is we got our first record deal because we gave a free bag of weed to John Joseph from the Chromax. No way. That, that is. Wow actually what what happened there was a booking agent on long island uh this dude christian mcknight who's like a huge everybody in new york knows him he's a you know big big dude he's been booking shows for forever and he at the time was the dude who booked shows on long island and he knew that we were big chromags fans and chromags were playing on long island on a friday night and he asked us if we wanted to open the show and we said of course and at the show chromags is on stage and john joseph says hey i don't smoke you know he's, he's straight edge but my nephew and like our roadie are looking for weed. If anybody knows where we can find some weed, like come, come hit me up after the show. And I knew somebody that was at the show that sold weed. And I was like, Hey, give me, give me a bag. Let me, let me give it to these dudes. And I go up to John Joseph and I give him this, this, this bag of weed. And he was like, how much do you want for this? And I was like, no, it's, it's cool. I got it. You know, it's, it's for you guys. Got it from a, from a friend. And he goes, that's amazing. You were in the opening band, right? And I go, yes. And he goes, hold on a second, wait right here. And he goes off and he goes and he talks to somebody and he comes back and says, we're doing a Sunday matinee this Sunday. So this was Friday night. He's like, on Sunday, we're doing a Sunday matinee at CBGB's. And this was, again, you got to realize like, Chromag's Sunday matinee, you know, CBGB's uh, to a hardcore kid, lifelong hardcore kid. This is, you, you, you know, you can't, you couldn't believe it. And he just says, he's like, we, the opening band on that show dropped off. Why don't you guys come open the show on Sunday? And Crazy. so we go Insane. play the show. I think it was like Hope Conspiracy and Ensign, like all these sick bands. And at that show is where the guys from Blackout Records saw us and said, and said they wanted to sign us. And so that was only like, again, I, I'm going to say the, the Chromag show, the first one was like our seventh show. And then oh, the wow. CB's show was maybe like our eighth show ever. And and we got signed at that, which really came down to giving, giving John Joseph free weed, a guy who doesn't even smoke weed. <laughs> well, I mean, that goes back to our initial kind of conversation about being you know, freshman playing with, with the varsity. Yeah. You'd cut your teeth 
around a lot of you know really amazing musicians so it was it was in the you know it, it was in the mix for you guys from the start and you know it's seven eight shows in you're having people asking you to sign that's so fucking amazing it was cool i mean we, we all have like great memories of this that like at that cb's show john joseph before we went on because we were opening like took christian aside and christian was just this like super bean pole skinny like gawky kid super nervous and and you know john joseph was just amping him up and hyping him up and and it was it was it was super cool so the question about nitro so here is another interesting story for whatever reason we fell out with blackout and and genuinely i don't remember the specifics of it we were i believe just not happy with whatever they were doing but i again i don't i don't recall the specifics but it also like wasn't like terrible it was it was semi amicable and i believe he had a option for a second album and we said if we how about we give you an ep and you let us you let us out and he said okay and that's why we put out the contract ep that's why it's called the contract and then we couldn't find anyone to sign us and it seemed like nobody was interested and so again i remember this so distinctly we were working at Merch Direct at the time, which was this, uh, this T-shirt company that Justin from yeah. Glassjaw oh, yeah. started. And the early days of Merch Direct was just all the dudes from Kill Your Idols, the dudes from Silent Majority, all me, Christian, and Mike from Crime and Stereo. You know, just a bunch of, all, a bunch of like legendary Long Island dudes, Hugo Fitzgerald and Brian Ian from Kill Your Idols, all these people were there. And we were sitting there kind of, just talking about how much it sucked that nobody wanted to sign us. And we were talking to Jay Reason, um, who was this, this East Coast hardcore dude. There's a, the another legendary yeah. dude. And he used to run Jamie Josta's label, Stillborn. And we were friends with him. We used to play with The Distance all the time. Shout out, Jay Reason. Awesome dude. And he was like, hey, man, like, I love your band. We all love your band. Like, we'd love to sign you to Stillborn. And he was like, it's probably wow. not. And at the time, this was like, sworn enemy you know was, oh, yeah. was like huge on that and, it, yeah. you know it was like it's probably not what people think of when they think of crime and stereo but like if nobody wants to sign you we'd love to have you guys on stillborn and we literally were about to send the email to be like we'd love to sign to stillborn let's do this and an email came in from nitro saying wow. hey we'd love to sign your band can you please give us a call blah blah like true like true cold call email and I, I like we will never forget it that we were sitting at the computer basically about to sign to to jamie from Hatebreed's label and and nitro emailed us the flip side to that story is even better what had happened was dexter holland the singer from the offspring his best friend is this guy jason an amazing dude he is the guy whose voice is saying gotta keep them separated oh, nice. Oh, no nice. yeah. come out and play so that so guy good. the guy whose whose voice you hear in that song is dexter holland's lifelong best friend who he's on smash he's on uh ixnay on the ombre he's got like platinum records all over his house and he was the offsprings roadie and guitar tech in their earliest days by the time this happened he had moved to seattle was living in seattle with his wife and kids and Dexter, if you don't know this, like he's a pilot, he flies planes himself and also owns several of his own planes. So he just like flies around doing what he wants to do. So he randomly had flown up to Seattle 
and went out for a beer with Jason and was just lamenting that like he felt like night nothing cool was happening at nitro because afi had just left so there was like you had the big huge afi years and that was also like gutter mouth and you know jughead's revenge and vandals and they had all this big stuff and it kind of it's almost like all of that stuff petered out at the same time and he was commiserating with his best friend saying I, this sucks. I have no bands to sign. And this dude goes, you have to listen to this record. And he takes Dexter Holland to his car and plays him explosives. And Dexter wow. gets back in his plane, flies back to LA, goes into Nitro the next day and tells his A&R guy, sign this band. The dude emails us in that moment. That's wow. when we get the email. So we don't sign to Stillborn. And then like a week later, he flew out to, to New York to see us at a Kill Your Idol show. And and then we signed with them, and they were amazing. Sean Zebarth is who is the dude who signed us. He all he signed No Trigger, Wilhelm Scream. That's how that roster of Nitro all happened, kind of in that moment, because Dexter was trying to like replenish the roster. They had this dude Sean, the A and R guy there, who was like the most amazing dude ever, and he signed us. No Trigger, Wilhelm Scream, right on. Uh, yep, the it Swellers. It it was awesome, and like and again, that whole period of of our lives is just like such an amazing memory offspring used to lend us their studio like their recording studio to go in and practice they would it's so silly to think about now because in my memory it's it my me in my memory look like i'm 12 years old but it's like at the time i was actually like 24 but they used to give us full run of their warehouse offspring's warehouse you have never seen an amount of gear like this in your life. I'm not kidding. It's a <laughs> it's a 20,000 square foot warehouse with road cases stacked to the ceiling. It's they easily could put on their own arena show by themselves. Like they could show up at Madison Square Garden and do all of the sound with their gear. <laughs> and they used to just let us climb like mountains of gear like we were like children and we would just be like opening road cases and be like oh like marshall 800 head and like pulling out like les pauls and these guys they would be like oh we haven't seen that in 10 years (laughs) and it was awesome it was a really it was a really really rad time and strangely what happened then is dexter started a hot sauce company Mm -hmm. and then decided that he wanted to pour all of his energy into his hot sauce company and basically kind of like turned Nitro into a catalog label and and then had this this uh hot sauce company called Gringo Bandito. That was good. Yeah. It was very good. Yeah. Yeah, we we've talked about that in the pod before too. Um so were you guys while you're kind of waiting to be signed by whoever at this point, are you writing the Troubled State side? Is it together or you have ideas for it? Yeah, yeah, I would say, I would say that every crime and stereo record up until obviously the new one, like had songs that were from the session of the previous record. And so like Nixon on is dead was a troubled stateside song. It was like a song that we had demoed musically. There weren't vocals written, but we had all the music uh, written on. Yeah. For troubled stateside. Interestingly, you can hear it on the record. That's the only song on is dead. That's in a, in a different tuning. So all that whole album is tuned to E flat and Nixon is the only song on the record that's in E standard. That's why it sounds so much brighter when you like hit that point in the record because Troubled Stateside was written and recorded in E standard. And that was from those sessions. Anyway, were we writing? We were always writing more than anything. That was really what we love to do. I'd still to this day, like we love making music more than anything. 
So we were always at, at practice, you know, we were always in the basement jamming. I mean, like, honestly, at that, at that period, if we were home, it was five days a week. We were playing every day. Uh, we were always writing. And Troubled Stateside, most of it, so Troubled Stateside's a weird record. It's a weird chronology because Troubled Stateside comes out in 2006 and Is Dead comes out in 2007, only a year apart. But they were recorded two years apart. So Troubled Stateside was actually recorded spring of 2005. And then we went on tour again, went to Europe, came back in the fall of 2005 and mixed it. And we handed it in at basically the end of the year, 2005. And so by the time it came out, it was spring 2006. And it really was a year after it had been recorded. That's crazy. But I remember also on that, that... um. Everything Changes and Bicycles for Afghanistan were the last two songs written. Those songs weren't. So when we did the Fuel Transit Sleep EP, which was like the this kind yeah, of like yeah. preview three song EP. When we did that, we thought that that other song, When the Women Come Out to Dance, we thought that was going on the album. And we thought the record was done. And then we did this European tour. And on that tour wrote Everything Changes and Bicycles for Afghanistan and came home and in those mixing sessions also recorded both of those songs. Uh, so those were the last two done basically like right before we handed it in. That's ironic because they're the first two songs on the album. You, yeah. hey, you, you answered a question I've had for probably, I don't know, 17, 18 years, which is I used to go on the bridge nine board a lot. I know whatever, you know, it, it hasn't aged well, but there was an article posted, an interview posted from Dexter Holland year, many, many years ago. And he basically said, he was asked about like, hey, are there any upcoming bands that, you know, you're interested in? And he was quoted saying, hey, there's this band Crime and Stereo I want to work with. And here's the irony. The album was already out. So like, it was a, it had to have been a brilliant Dexter PhD moment where he's like, I'm going to direct people to an album we just, we already put out. I, look. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, do. you I remember do. this? Okay. Here's yeah. the, look, here's the thing. <laughs> I, I'm trying to like. This is this is no shade, literally whatsoever. Like that dude, fucking rules. Offspring rules. I love them as a band still to this day. And he was nothing but amazing to us. But is it possible that the record had completely come out already, and that he was not aware and thought that this was still like <laughs> a, an upcoming thing? Like, yes. You you have to understand. <laughs> yep. I I don't until I was up close to him. You don't realize how big The Offspring is or how many records they Massive. have sold. And to put it in context for you, prior to this most, whatever this most recent Blink-182 did, at this time, at the time at which we were talking, so this is after the, the Blink major label, like I Miss You, the I Miss You record, you know, like the Sirius record. This was already after that. Offspring had sold two and a half times more records than Blink-182. I believe it, yep. So Blink, I think, had 20 million records sold at the time, and Offspring had 50. Dexter's next-door neighbor was Billy Bob Thornton. Crazy. Like, there was a time when we were on Nitro where he was going to sign Billy Bob Band. They were called, like, the Boxcars or something like that. And he was going to put out their record just because, like, that was his bro. He owned three planes. When The first time we met him, he left that meeting to go fly to Russia because he was buying a Russian MiG fighter jet and he was like i'm going to russia i got a decommissioned fighter jet they took the weapons off of it and it's like the russian enemy plane from top gun 
and I'm flying to Russia, and then <laughs> I'm going to fly that back. And that was like his third or fourth plane at that time. Anyway, I say all of this to say that this is, this is like a Lannis Morissette level shit, like fame and money totally. and, you know, like, it's, it's this kind of thing where it's like you, the, the street, it's like Will Smith lives on your block and things like that. Like, and I don't mean this as, I don't mean this pejoratively, just as like a, a blanket statement of fact, you can't live on planet Earth. You, you can't right. be in Beverly Hills and on the radio and TV every day and have 50 million records sold and have checks for just millions and millions of dollars showing yeah. up just whenever they show up. And then also, you know, I don't know, have like day-to-day -day oversight of like your, your vanity. Your, your empire. Right? Label. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And then also you also have to remember too that like, remember what a lightning bolt AFI was for Nitro. You oh, know, yeah. like they were the best and biggest punk hardcore band on the planet for, for years and years and years. And so yeah. they also sold millions of records for Nitro, like before they got to Sing the Sorrow, like their, their record sales were over a million on Nitro. All of their albums were in the hundreds of thousands sold. So, you know, again, do I like, could, could I believe it that Dexter didn't know the day-to-day -day of Crime and Stereo? Yes. I also have another very funny Dexter, quick Dexter story, which is the, also the first time that we met him. He brings us into his office. We're at the warehouse. He's like, come in, hang out. And one of the first questions he asks us, and he's like, he's like, how's tour? And we're like, we love it. We fucking love it. It's the best. It's the greatest. And he's like, that'll change. And I remember at the time, like in the moment, being like, Oh, that was kind of a dick thing to say, you know, like we're so enthusiastic and we were like so exuberant and that he was just kind of like, it seemed like kind of like a wet blanket thing. I was like, ah, like, I, why, why say that? But then, you know, at the time he was in his mid forties and it's like, he was a trillion percent right. You know what I mean? Like a dude that spent a lifetime on tour was like, all right, guys who are on their first year of touring ever, you know? <laughs> right. At some point, the floor is not going to be as appetizing. Yeah, yeah. And the, it, the van, exactly. yeah, yeah. You're but he gonna, was awesome. Nitro it. was awesome. Everybody there was incredible. Like, to think back about, like, how they treated us and, and everything. Like, we were just, like, random-ass kids from New York. And then, like, when we would go out there, they would, again, like, Offspring would give us their studio to, to sleep at and to rehearse in and give us full run of the warehouse. And we would get stacks of, like, AFI vinyl with every variant. And we would be walking out of there with just thousands and thousands of dollars in merch every single time we went. <laughs> and they were like, you know, like, couldn't, couldn't have been happier about it. We've been very lucky with the labels that we've been on. Bridge Nine was amazing. Pure Noise Now, it like truly blows my mind. They're unbelievable and spectacular and incredible. And we just, you know, run for cover who we worked with and Blackout. And we've just been super 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 lucky we've been on all the best labels and it's it's been really really awesome you guys have nailed it with the labels we'll keep this moving a little bit here uh troubled stateside i'll say this it could be my favorite record of all time so i i graduated college in 2007 so when this drops i'm 20 those wow. lyrics and i believe you're still you were you the predominant lyricist of that album yeah yeah so like that that speaks to a 20, 21 year old, someone coming out of college, like it's amazing. And we've, Tony and I have talked about it. Like there's some bands that you grow up with that you happen to 
be the same age and grow with them and mature with them. And that record hit me in a time that was like, holy shit. So beyond the Thank songs, yeah. beyond Thank the melodies, you. the lyrics hit me brilliantly. And to have that backstory in Nitro, like, I love the record even more, Alex. Holy <laughs> shit. I didn't think it was possible. Yeah, listen, I'll, I will t- I'll tell you some, some quick recollections that I have of, of that record, like, and of that time. We were very, very anxious at the time because it didn't sound like anything else. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to, like, gas myself up here or anything, but it just, like, I'm not saying that like, oh, it was so amazing that nothing else sounded like it, but it just really sounded different. It didn't sound like, you know, at the time, we basically toured exclusively with all of the big East Coast straight edge hardcore bands. Like every tour was like us and Have Heart and Blacklisted and Verse and Guns Up and, you know, Down to Nothing. Cambridge Alex, baby. So... It didn't sound like anything like that. But then even the other bands that we kind of like were aiming for, like Lifetime, it didn't, it didn't sound like that. And we handed it in. I felt like there's another thing I remember distinctly. We handed it in at the same time as No Trigger handed in Canyoneer. Oh, yeah. Yep. And no so Nitro, right. like, you know, it was like, yeah, like, we were all bros. We used to play with them. And they gave us Canyoneer. And we were like, oh, fuck. Like, it, it, there was like a moment where I think we all were like, did we fuck up? You know, like. Because it was like, Canyoneer was like, I felt like, oh, this is what it's supposed to sound like. You know, like, this is what a melodic hardcore punk band and record is supposed to sound like. And it, and it was just like, they, they just nailed, that record is so perfect. And they had just nailed it. And at the same time, Set Your Goals were our, um, our, our you know, the, those were kind of our day ones. We, we love those For dudes. Sure. When I talked about our first goal ever being able being to tour out to California, our first ever California show was the first ever Set Your Goals show. Oh wow! So this they is... opened that show. That was their first show ever. Was our first Cali show. So those were our dudes, and they had just done Mutiny right around the time. And I just do remember kind of feeling like, oh shit! Like, is anybody gonna know what to make of this or? what because it didn't sound like anything and it's incredibly comical to us now in the band to for the number of people that reference that as like our halcyon hardcore days you know like our our salad days but they make it sound like you know uh like we were a traditional hardcore band at any point and i don't think that we were we always have been a hardcore band but we never did really like very traditional hardcore and now retroactively when people are trying to i think maybe say like how we've gone a field they reference that record like i wish they you know still did the, like these hardcore right you know this sound but to be in the band at the time everyone in like in the of the more of the hardcore scene everybody was like what the fuck is this you know it's not like we put that out and people were like yes this traditional hardcore record that slots in perfectly with what everyone else is doing. Like at the time people were like, no, this is too far afield and it's too left of center and it's not real hard. You know, like that's the story of, of us as a band is people being like, this isn't re-, you know, I guess people can't see the air quotes that I'm, that I'm doing <laughs> on a podcast, but like people <laughs> saying like, Oh, we're not, we're not a real hardcore band or yeah. whatever, or something. But you got a lot band. of cosigns like COA was a big fan. Like, Behind oh. the Crime of Serial Banner is the COA snitch 
Oh, I record have that release. Poster. Yeah, 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 you, you guys are on it. Like, you, the best. Yeah, you guys were on that show at Romans. So, like, you lived in both worlds. Yeah, like, oh, the Death Before Dishonor dudes, uh, like, loved us. Like, a lot, all those, there was those bands, like, they're all, they were all our bros, and um, we love all of those bands, and the bands themselves were always very supportive of us, but, you know, it, it wasn't across the board. You know, there's always, it's never going to change. For there's sure. always, like, a very traditionalist element in hardcore of people saying, you know, what is and isn't and what does and doesn't count. What always was a thing that we like hung our hats on was that when we got to become friends with, with Silent, we'd always known the Silent Majority guys and then later on became friends with Life, the guys in Lifetime. We got to play, they asked us to play their record release for the, the 2007 like self-titled record. And both the dudes in Silent Majority and Lifetime separately told us, they were like, you guys are having the experience we had. That like we were hardcore kids who only ever knew to play hardcore shows with hardcore bands but you only ever kind of really got a 50% acceptance rate in the room, you know, of that, that there were always people being like, what is this? Why do I have to, why do I have to sit through this before I can see the, the heavy bands that I, that I came to see? Mm. So to have our favorite bands, you know, say that we had a similar experience to them was um, amazing. Well, and I feel like you probably got more of that when signing with Bridge Nine. I know we talked to Chris Wren last spring, and we got kind of his side of you guys signing with Bridge Nine and putting out Is Dead. And I would imagine it kind of continued with that because that was a little more of a change from what totally. you were doing with Trouble Stateside. Yeah, they, on, they, Chris Wren is amazing. He's the best. Like, Bridge Nine was, was spectacular. We were signed by uh, Carl Hensel, uh, who was in the band Holding On, and then he went and ran... Um, King's Road merch at Epitaph for a while. He's like the best. All these guys are just like such incredible people. I believe I would have to check with Chris Wren. I don't know if this is still the case, but I do know that for a while we were the most prolific band on Bridge Nine, that we had more releases on the label than any other band ever. I would, uh, wow. I would be interested to, to know if that's still true. They're amazing. They were nothing but supportive. And honestly, they were so much more magnanimous and supportive than they could have been, meaning like at the time I did, totally. I remember feeling that like, like, man, did we rug pull these guys a little bit? Like that they signed us off the troubled state side, which does slot into, you know, uh, a hardcore label. And especially at the time, Bridge Nine was doing, they, you know, signing Polar Bear Club and Strike Anywhere, and they were doing like the Newfound Glory thing. And so there's a clear through line of like, oh, troubled state side. The next Troubled State side would be perfect for what we're doing here. And then when we handed in Is Dead, I mean, they didn't blink. Like, they didn't, they weren't like, what is this or, or whatever. They, you know, like they were totally a thousand percent behind it from day one. And I do remember at the time feeling like, oh shit, like, did we, did we rug pull these guys? Like, was that, was that not fair to them? But, but that was in my head and they, and they were amazing. Yeah. Cause we, like Tony said, we had Chris on and the premise of the episode was, we we hit him with five records from Bridge Nine that we love. We didn't even tell him what they were. And he just talked about the signing and talked about the album. And he said that he didn't put any pressure and had any influence. He he let you guys cook and his dead yeah. came out. And uh it's funny, like as a band, I'm putting myself in your shoes, I would probably think the same thing. You know, like yeah. are we did we rug pull these guys? Yeah. Because it was so different, but it was so good. Like at the end of the day, if the product's good, like 
and I mean, the proof is in the pudding. It's like you said, one of the better selling uh, Bridge Nine records. We, yeah, I mean, to, to speak to how amazing Chris was, there's a whole story behind the cover for try, I was trying to describe you to someone and why that cover is so strange. I want to hear it because that's a question we have. You're segueing into our, I, into our uh, playbook. Here's the here. thing. Here's the thing. I'm not going to tell that story. And the reason is <laughs> it's not there's there's no way to tell the story without it making seem like maybe, you know, I don't I don't know. I don't want to tell it. Don't tell it. Leave the leave the yeah, hit, I, I'm, leave not it. Tell, I'm not going to tell that story other than to say that's not the cover that it was supposed to be. That's not what it was supposed to be. And there is a story behind why and how that happened. But. All of that to say that when we were like, all right, like this, this is the cover. Chris like looked at it and I, I you could just, you could read his, in his mind, <laughs> like his, like his brain going like, what the fuck am I looking at? What is this? What are you okay. doing? Cause, cause that was my reaction as a super fan. Yes, of, of course. Of that, listen, that's the appropriate reaction. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and, and I just, and I remember like you could clear, so clearly read what was going on behind his eyes. And it was just like, this this is what it is and like yup and and you know it's like and this is what you guys want like yup and he's like okay and not even like like a dick not even like okay you know just like truly totally magnanimous just like okay cool like if this is the cover you want and and i look back on that and it's like he would have been so well within his bounds to say hey listen whatever is happening here artistically this is a commercial product that we have to sell and I am financing this product with my own cash. And like you are made you're this is good. This cover is going to make it difficult for us to sell this record. Like he would have been totally fine to say, like, can we do something here because this is my money and you guys are making it very difficult for me to, you know, recoup this money. And it was none of that. He was just like, all right, if this is the cover, if this is the cover and this is what you want, like. That's it. And ne literally never brought it up again, never said anything about it again, was just it, uh, like thinking back on it, it. It's like magnanimous to a degree that is like really remarkable, because I think most people probably that would have been the minute that they were like, all right, can we let's talk about this. All right. So how close were you to using your face for the cover versus Christians? N never, 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 never. Uh, never um, <laughs> The short answer of it, the easiest, simplest explanation I can give for this cover is there was a specific, you can Google this, people can Google this, the cover, the Japanese variant cover of the Philip K. Dick novel, Two Sleeping Androids Dream Electric Sheep. There was a different cover for every country that that was printed in. All of his books had different covers in every country. And the Japanese cover specifically, I wanted to steal. And there was no way of us at the time figuring out who to talk to and how to get these rights and what the licensing would be. And at the same time, it wasn't worth it to risk just doing it and hoping that we didn't get sued because then if we did, all these records had to be recalled and it would have been a whole thing. So this was from the outset, there was an attempt at recreating that cover that Christian was going to be the guy. Right there was now. like a cartoon, you know, an illustration of a guy 
on a cover, and we were going to make Christian the guy on the cover, and then we were going to recreate this cover. And the very short version of it is, and then there was not no more money. <laughs> there was like, <laughs> there was not enough money for this level and amount and degree of illustration to take place. And I believe, if I remember, you know, my my memory's sketchy, but like, if I believe, we really were at a point where it was like. There was not a dime more to spend on this album and the album had to be handed in. And it was like we were out of time and we were out of money. The band truly, honestly, was basically on the verge of breaking up. Like we were totally frayed. You know, we broke up very shortly after that record was released. And I and everybody was just like, all right, that's what it is. Fuck it. Like here. Wow. It's crazy. All right. That is the end of part one of our conversation with Alex Dunn of Crime and Stereo. Stay tuned next week. Part two is coming at you. Uh, we're really excited for you to check that part out too. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Patio Slave. We are at Patio Slave on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all of the places that you can find us on social media. Facebook, Patio Slave Podcast. YouTube, Patio Slave Podcast there. Email us at Podcast at gmail.com. And hey, if you want to become a supporter, click on the link at the bottom of the episode and give us a dollar, give us five bucks. It keeps the lights on, keeps us going. We really appreciate that stuff. Thank you.